I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on PressBox Access. Bob Kravitz has never been afraid to tell it like it is. There are no sacred cows in his field. He's always been willing to take an unpopular stance with his column if he believes it. And he believes it because he does the reporting. I know Bob is more than a fearless rider. He dared to survive a car ride in Greece with me behind the wheel. Oh, we're going to get into that and more. Hey, Bob, it's been a while, man. Thanks a lot for joining us on the show. It's absolutely my pleasure, Todd. Good to hear from you again. (laughs) Well, Bob, I know you're busy. You're still at it. 36 years, but you're still cranking them out now for the athletic. Um, It's been quite a ride for you throughout your career. You're Denver for a decade, Indianapolis since 2000, different places before that, Plain Dealer in Cleveland, SI. You've been all over the place, and you're still cranking them. I really admire that. Well, you know, I, I need to uh, retire with money. And <laughs> <laughs> believe me, if I could retire in the next 10 minutes, Todd, I think that I would. I think well, don't I probably, do it in 10 minutes. I mean, we need you for a little longer All right, than that. all right, maybe, maybe after this podcast. But look, I, I love what I do. And, mm-hmm. you know, I've got a lot of friends uh, who have real jobs. And, you know, they really want to retire. They just want to get out and play golf every day. And I'm not saying that I don't want to play golf every day. But I still get a, I still get, there's, I still get juice, you yeah, know, well, from doing this. It's still fun. Well, it has been quite a ride. And I was thinking about back to the times that <laughs> we have crossed paths and we had quite a ride literally in 2004 at the Olympic Games in Athens, Greece. Yes. You and I and Tom Archdeacon from the Dayton Daily News and Karen Krause from the New York Times decided to take a car ride from Athens to Olympia Mm -hmm. to see the original site of the Olympic Games, the ancient games. And it was like a four-hour drive. And I don't know what your memory is of that day. I have a lot of great memories, but I also have a little, you know— uh, painful memories of when we returned. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, first of all, I remember the drive out there it was one of the most beautiful scenic drives uh, I've ever taken. I mean, we were along the coast and it was just spectacular. And I remember Olympia itself really being inspiring and, and you just felt like you were walking into, you know, into history. Uh, but yeah, when we came home, we were doing okay on that one major highway. Yeah, that uh, one highway, we were fine. Yeah, we were fine. And then yeah. we got to the outskirts of Athens. And yeah. then we had absolutely, you know, people, you know, yes, there was life before cell phones and Google Maps. And that's that's when we're, we're, that was the era we were living in. So we had no earthly clue how to uh, navigate our way back home. Not only that, but but I don't even think this was a car. I, th- I think it was a tuna can <laughs> with four wheels. <laughs> It was a little bit like my first car in college. Yes. Yes. It was, yes. it was, um, it, it's not something that uh, should be on a road, a major road. And, and uh, I remember we got, we were heading back and we kept stopping at all these uh, gas stations to ask for directions. Right. And, right. That's what old be, guys do, right? You right stop there, and right. ask directions. Right. We're, and, you know, they say guys don't ask for directions. Well, we ask for directions. The problem was, that, you know, they use the Cyrillic alphabet over there. So when they say make a left on whatever street, 
I'm looking at Delta, Tau, Theta, uh, you know, all these Greek symbols. And I have no idea. We had, I have no idea to this day how we found our where we were staying. I have no clue. We just I don't either. We stumbled have, on it. All the signs were Greek to me. Exactly. And I do recall at one point, Karen and Tom, and I don't blame them for this. No. They basically just abandoned ship. Well, we were, we were yeah. stopped and they fled the car to go hail a cab. And <laughs> you and I were stuck in the front of the tuna can. <laughs> I'm driving and I'm like, well, we're going down with a ship, Kravitz. Well, I appreciate the fact that you stuck by me because I may have ended up in Cyprus. Which, <laughs> which I, I wouldn't think have been is, so bad when you think w- about which it. Which wouldn't have been bad, but I think Cyprus is an island, so it would have been tough in my tuna can. Well, but, it, hey. Uh, I think it's an island. I'm not sure. Whatever. I'm glad you stuck it out, and I, I remember getting home and sucking down several quick beers just yeah, to had, make had the few, memory. To, yeah, just to decompress. Right, but it was it was a wonderful day. It, it, it was, was a wonderful day. It was a wonderful day. I mean, Olympia itself, uh, I mean, it's the site of the ancient games, right? And you and I were standing at the tunnel knowing this is where the ancient Greeks went, went through this archway, and it was fabulous. But it will always be— the memory of the tuna can the tuna and the can. signs. It, it, it was almost as frightening as, I remember with Les Bowen, we were in, Al, I think it was in Albertville. and we Philadelphia, were Philadelphia, Les, yeah. Yeah, Les Bowen. And we were coming back from a, a hockey practice, USA hockey practice, and the brakes were going out on this car. We're coming down the damn mountain now. And somehow, <laughs> somehow, he was like James Bond. I don't know how he got us down, but... To this day, I owe my life to Les Bowen. You got to have no fear in this business, and you have had no fear throughout your career. I mean, heck, you even play hockey. You were a goaltender. I was. Uh, so not Past only did tense. you write sports, you played sports, and you're in the you're in the net taking uh, hockey pucks slapped at you. So you have no fear, right, Bob? Uh, you know, you know what's funny. I, when I lived in Denver, sometimes I would go out with some of the Avalanche players uh, when they needed a goaltender during the summer. And I would play. Wait a minute, Patrick Waugh wasn't available? <laughs> yeah, Patrick wasn't available. Their backup, uh, Craig Billington. Ben, Billington. Uh, he, so they would ask me if I want to come out and play. So I'm out there with Adam Foote and Peter Forsberg and all these guys, and they are lighting me up like a Christmas tree. Uh, I, I'm My my five hole is declared a national park. I mean, they're just <laughs> killing me. But it was great fun. I can I can say that. Alexei Gusarov took a slap shot that hit me in the chest so hard I couldn't breathe for about five minutes. Well, rumor has it you were in slap shot, so uh, uh, that, that, that was that, the way so. it was. Yeah, so, yeah. But seriously, you did. You actually played uh, yeah. club hockey at Indiana, where you went to uh, college, and uh, you were in you were in net for the Hoosiers club team, right? Uh, well, you know the Hoosiers had a pretty good basketball team too. You know, oh, they were when, pretty good. When you were in college, uh, you know, and they had this coach, and I think his name was what? Robert Montgomery Knight, I believe. Yes. Um, so you, in the early 80s, I mean, you're for, you're working for the student newspaper, and you're covering the national champions. They won the championship in 81. In and 81. you're in school. And talk about no fear. You <laughs> once told me about the first time you ever yes. met Bob Knight as a journalist, uh, what was that like? Yeah, I was. I think I was. It's my sophomore year, and they put me on IU hoops with another guy. Uh, I think Tom Brew, and um, they. So his secretaries told me and Dan Barrero, who uh, was working, I think, in Louisville at the time, 
told um, us to just wait for Coach Knight in his office. So he did. And about 10 minutes later, this very large naked man. Naked? Comes, naked. Yeah. Follow me, Todd. I don't know if I want to. (laughs) Completely buck naked, walks out of the shower and plops himself down on a red Naugahyde type chair and just sits there. It's like, what the bleep do you want? So he was trying, he was toy, he was messing with me. I mean, he comes out there, he's buck naked. Okay. You know, I'm scared to death. Uh, And he's buck naked. And he's like, what the hell do you want? And actually we had a pretty good discussion. What did we, you we, talk about? You and uh, Naked Bob. Me and Naked Bob, we talked about uh, access. And yeah, he, I bet. Well, he's giving you plenty. Yeah, he's got, got more access than I know what to do with. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we talked about access. He, he t- It's funny. He told me, uh, if you have something that you're writing that needs me and you need me, you feel free to come to me anytime and don't worry if I get pissed off because I don't want you to be a, a, a so-and-so like some of these other writers you come to me and let's have a discussion. Well, about a month later, uh, I wrote a piece that I needed a quote from him. And I went uh, to talk to him, told him what I was writing about. And he went bananas. Really? He went bananas. I mean, I remember Isaiah Thomas was on the court laughing his behind off. I'm trying to keep my language uh, good here, but... That's yeah. all right. It's all fair in the, in the barber end. Don't worry okay, about good. it. He's what, uh, by the way, what was the yeah. story about that he was so upset about? You know, what What I wrote was uh, one year earlier, um, a couple of guys got kicked off the team for allegedly smoking marijuana no. at, at uh, the Alaska shootout. Because what the hell else is there to do in Alaska? Except and, being cold. <laughs> except being cold. So, uh, you know, and I had talked to some of those players and actually— one of them was very thankful to Coach Knight uh, for, you know, setting him on the straight and narrow, yada, yada, yada. Right. Uh, the other one was kind of critical, uh, and the third one I couldn't get a hold of. So I told Knight, you know, I was doing this story, and he went he went crazy. And so the next game they were playing at Kentucky, and I'll never forget being in the uh, press room before the game, and all the managers are looking at me and kind of whispering. And I'm thinking, what the hell is up? Well, after the game, I went to go into the locker room and I got all these, you know, young, uh, you know, Nazi youth are there at the uh, at the uh, door telling me, no, you're not allowed in. So basically Mm. for the next three years, uh, I had no access to the Indiana basketball team except for press conferences, uh, which were always interesting, too, because Knight wouldn't answer any of my questions at press conferences. So I made sure to ask him one, at least one every press conference. So he just wouldn't ignore you? He would just say, next next question. Hmm. Yeah, it was. And you know what? It, 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 was, it was a good growth experience, I think. Because, look, you get into this business, you're going to have those moments where you've got to stand up for yourself. And, and you've got to fight. And you've got to, you know, yeah, you got to stand up for yourself. And so, I, you know, in a way... Dealing with Coach Knight helped me deal with certain people, Bill Polian and others later on down the, down the road. Yeah. I mean, I remember a similar incident for myself as a student journalist at the University of Kentucky. Uh, some football players uh, got into a fight with some frat guys, and we wrote a story about it in a student newspaper. And Jerry Claiborne was the football coach. And I remember right. being at practice. This is probably like 1986. 
And he starts from about 30 yards away, and he is just screaming at me. <laughs> and he's walking towards me, and the whole team is watching this. And I just felt like, you remember when Fred Flintstone shrank, kept shrinking on the chair next yes. to that giant carrot? Yes. I was Fred. You were Fred, yes. I was Fred. But looking back on it, you're right. I learned a lot. You learned yeah. that, you know, there are times where if you're doing your job and you're accurate and you're fair, it's not going to make them happy all the time. And no. um, that's just part of the gig. You're oh, going to have to learn how to deal with it. And it's not something that's easy, but, you know, you had to, like, toughen your skin up at a young age. And no, you had I, it from Bob Knight. Yeah, um, he helped a lot. And, yeah, it, you know, uh, when, I do, when I do teach on, on occasion, you know, college classes, you know, we talk about the things you need, the qualities you need to be good at this. And I think fearlessness is, is one of the pri primary um, elements uh, to do what we do well. I mean, you can't be afraid— to piss people off. Well, let's talk about fearlessness in terms of the the part of your career when you were in Colorado. Mm -hmm. um, you were, you know, after uh, you got out of school, you went to some different places. You were at SI mm -hmm. for a couple of years. You were in Cleveland for a few years. But you went to the Rocky Mountain News in 1990 in Denver. And for the kids out there, Denver mm -hmm. in the 1990s was an old-fashioned newspaper war. It was beautiful. The Rocky Mountain News versus the Denver Post. And there was a lot going on in that decade you were there in Denver. Um, what was it like to be a reporter, a writer, a journalist in Denver in the 1990s? Well, it was so insane that there were times, honest to God, where I would talk to athletes in a locker room who I had no intention of writing about that day or really? maybe ever. Just, just, to screw to with throw, just to throw them off the scent. <laughs> I did not want them to know what the hell I was working on. Um, <laughs> it, 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 it got crazy. I mean, I had guys on my staff who who I was persona non grata because I was, you know, uh, uh, friendly with, with the enemy at times. You know, not I mean, I'm not giving up any uh, state secrets, but I felt like, you know, life's too short. I'm not going to. Uh, be in, in, in a terrible relationship with all the people I'm spending time with on the road. Um, you know, I mean, I missed the ultimate craziness with that when Elway came in in, what, 84? Mm -hmm. And um, they were literally fighting over who could get the scoop on what John Elway was having for lunch. Honest really? to God. Really? It, was, it was insane. And, yeah, I mean, when, when we... Uh, broke the story. Norm Clark broke the story. Um, that he was having what, a tuna salad? That, no. <laughs> Back to tuna again, by the way. Tuna seems to be a theme here. Sorry, folks. Uh, that's funny. Uh, but, you know, we, we got the story. He got the story that we were getting Major League Baseball. And, you know, they basically put me in quarantine after that. I wasn't even allowed to tell my wife. You know, because back then, you weren't putting it on the Internet. You had to right. wait until the next morning. So, for six hours, you get you're getting no sleep, and you're praying to God that we're going to get it in the newspaper. It's like it's like with the Flake Gate, and I tell kids this all the time. In Cincinnati, where I was in the late '80s, early '90s, it was a two newspaper town, and we were mm -hmm. the afternoon paper, the Cincinnati Post. Right. So talk about if you had something, and, and you're just walking around like you had a nuclear missile in your backpack. And if you had a story, and if you didn't have a story, you were waking up every morning with a pit in your stomach. That's it. Wondering if the Inquirer was going to drop a bomb on you. 
And yet, I think it made everybody better. It, it made did. for better sports scene. It made for better journalism. Um, I, you know, I, I look back, and the Cincinnati guys, we were we were friendly, you know. It was like the uh, cartoon with the sheepdog and the wolf, and they would, you know, try to kill each other during the day, and then they'd clock out and have a beer. Right. But journalistically, it was, you know, it was— Cutthroat. Um, it was cutthroat. cutthroat. And— I don't think it was as cutthroat as Denver because in Denver in the 90s, you had, like you said, the Rockies came in. You had the, the Avalanche, Avalanche come into town. Right. They win the cup in 96. You had the mm-hmm. Nuggets in the NBA. And then, of course, you had the Denver Broncos where everything is about Denver, the Broncos, and John Elway at that time, right? Oh, absolutely. Well, let's talk about John Elway a little bit. I mean, he was at the eye of the storm, all things Denver. Uh, like you said, it got there in 84, and then you get there in 90. And so throughout the, the 90s, it's John Elway 24-7. Um, what was it like for Elway to be the eye of the storm? What was it like for you as a journalist to be around him and to cover a guy like that uh, at that time period? Well, you know, earlier on, he complained that he, uh, and I remember Jay Mariotti, who we both know uh, very well. Jay killed him, as Jay is wont to do. Um Killed him because John talked about how he didn't have any privacy. And I guess there was a story uh, about what the Elways gave for uh, Halloween candy. And he got very upset and said, I can't breathe in this town. Yeah, he said, I'm about to suffocate. I'm about to suffocate. I'm glad you remember that. Yeah. Um, But and Jay killed him for it. By the time I got there in 90, I think he had come to terms with the fact that, you know, he is who he is and. You know, he's like Peyton was here in, in, in Indianapolis where he's, uh, you know, I mean, he, he's just on another level. I thought John was a cool guy. Uh, you know, he's a kind of, I mean, we didn't go out and have beers or anything because I, that's not something I do with athletes on, on a regular basis. I don't think mm-hmm. any of us do, but um, I just thought John was pretty chill. You know, I, I thought that he, he handled things well. You know, he had one period where he went to Dick Connor, uh, who was a columnist with the Denver Post, and complained about Dan Reeves and basically ran Reeves out of town. And uh, they ultimately brought in his guy, Mike Shanahan, and then went on to win two Super Bowls. I have to mention here that in uh, 1990, maybe five, before they went on their little run of Super Bowls, Mm -hmm. I wrote a brilliant column saying they really ought to trade John that way. <laughs> yeah. That was a good one. Yeah. And what do the kids say now? That did not age well. No. That no. did not age well. I think about all the stupid things I've read. That was but. wine with not only a cap on top, that had scotch tape on top. I know. I know. But, uh, yeah, three, two, it's okay. I mean, <laughs> we all— we all we all, hey, we've uh, all, we've all been there, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So what did Elway, what did Elway respond to that? Nothing. I— yeah, Elway, I think, understood the the dynamic of of the of a two newspaper town. You know, I'm not saying that he went to school and studied journalism, but I, he's a sharp enough guy that I think he understood that everybody was fighting over who could who could say the most outrageous stuff or who could get the the big scoop on the Broncos. So yeah, I, I, think I, that, think, I think that's I think that was cool part of the quarterback then, right? The quarterback, yeah. I mean, they were more available. Now it's like you get a few minutes in a can setting. But quarterbacks back in those days, I remember Boomer Esiason in Cincinnati, he would hold Fort at his locker wreck every day almost. And you'd be at his locker, you know, several riders, and he, he would just talk on and on. And at the end, he'd go, you guys got enough? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's you know? 
that was uh, that was John. You know, I mean, nowadays, you know, like with I mean, Peyton was always incredibly available, but you only got him a couple of days, you know, maybe once or twice a week. Right. Uh, now, if you needed him for something special, they would they would, you know, uh, accommodate you. But um, no, he uh, it's funny. We had Philip Rivers here last year and Philip Rivers is like the all time greatest media dude. I mean, he will he will talk and talk and talk and he gave you great stuff on Zoom. I can't imagine how great he would have been to actually have conversations in the locker room with him. Right. Yeah, he's got a great reputation for that. Yeah. But John, you know, it's funny. When you look back on Elway's career, there was a time when he was 0-3 in the Super Bowl, Mm -hmm. and he was getting blasted for not being able to win the big one. At the same time, he was this guy who also produced, you know, the drive and a 47 fourth quarter comeback. So. He was doing it, but he just couldn't win that big one. The Broncos couldn't get over to hump. And then it all changed when he finally got the monkey off his back. Well, did he uh, change? Did he change after they finally won the Super Bowl in 97? I think he found athletic peace. I really do. I think uh, he always talked before he won uh, about how it's not going to define me. Uh, I'm happy with who I am and what I've accomplished. And if I never win a Super Bowl, uh, it won't be a hole in my resume. Uh, and then he won. And you remember that helicopter play yeah. um, uh, against yeah. against Green Bay. And I remember looking at Mike Litwin in the press box, and we both just sort of mouthed to each other, it's over. They're going to win this thing. They're going to win this thing. After he won the Super Bowl, uh, he said, you know what? All that time I was saying that I'd be fine with not winning the Super Bowl, I was lying. Mm. You know, winning a Super Bowl is – you know, it's what, what you do. It's why you do what you do. It's why you, you know, the guy played his entire career missing, missing like part of his arm. I mean, he, he had some kind of muscular deal going on. I don't remember the exact uh, part of all of it. But, uh, yeah, I think once he won the Super Bowl and then he won the second one, went out on top, you know, this one's for John and all that stuff. That was, uh, it was poetic and it was wonderful. And I think it gave him a sense of completion. Well, it certainly gave you the experience and understanding and perspective to then go to Indianapolis and deal with another all-time great quarterback, obviously, in Peyton Manning. Because um, I think also, like Elway, there were years when Manning was kind of not winning the big one, as they say, in the in the playoffs, couldn't quite get over to hump. So was there a similarity in and how they were perceived uh, from that perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I again, I don't know off the top of my head, but I think he had eight one-and-dones in the playoffs. And I was critical of him. I mean, if you looked, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but if you looked at the points scored for the, for the Colts in their playoff losses, it was minuscule. I mean, Peyton, I'm sorry. I mean, the people here get on my ass about this, but – Peyton no, they get on you, Bob. <laughs> I know. Peyton was not uniformly, consistently good in the postseason. Why is that when you look back at it? I think, and I may be completely full of crap here, I think it's paralysis by analysis. I think he is so unbelievably prepared that when he has to go off script and when when stuff starts to hit the fan— I think he gets a little flustered. I think he gets a little lost. Hmm. You know, I remember a game against Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, it was the best team they had. It was 2005. And they had beaten the Steelers by 1,000 to nothing earlier in the season. 
They were they had a home game. They, it was a typical 13 and 3 season, something like that. And Pittsburgh came with some stuff that they'd never seen before. And Peyton was so flustered until late in the game. And then of course Vanderjat misses the field goal. But um yeah, I I, I was critical of him. Um but you know, I think Peyton was critical of himself too. But why it happened, I'm not sure. But I, 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 my guess would be that he just was so, so prepared that when things didn't go according to the script, he got somewhat paralyzed. Do you have a favorite anecdote about his preparation? It's legendary. Um, you know, I, I, I remember once asking him about, you know, he because he he called so many audibles at the line of scrimmage. And I asked him one time, I said, you ever worry about losing your voice? Hmm. And he went on and told me about all these things he does for his, for his voice, all these <laughs> tinctures and things that he does. Uh, you know, not, this isn't a preparation story. It's one of my favorites. One day uh, he was doing, giving, doing autographs for kids. And I, I just was kind of hanging out and I noticed that he had incredible penmanship. And so I asked him, I said, you know, I look at some of these other guys, it, it just looks like chicken scratch. You know, it's a Cyrillic alphabet. I don't know what you're saying. <laughs> but I look at Peyton's, and Peyton's was, it, it was John Hancock. It was beautiful. Was he taught and, by nuns? No, no, but he was taught by his father. And we sat and talked for almost 40 minutes where he talked about the importance of writing legibly so that that kid who got an autograph uh, in training camp in 1998 or whatever, 2000, that he can look at that ball one day and say, that ball, I got that signed by Peyton Manning hmm. and not be left to uh, to guess who it well, is. That kind of, that's kind of an insight to his thoughtfulness too because yes. everybody, everybody has heard about, you know, the charities he's been involved in, the Peyton Manning Children's Hospital there in Indianapolis. Um, but, you know, he's got a reputation of being a very accommodating person was available to the people and to the media in Indianapolis. It wasn't a role he played, right? It was just, no, just kind of who he was. Yeah. I mean, you know, some people thought he was phony because, you know, almost too good to be true. But, you know, I mean, he, he, just like, you know, he did a um, uh, a Zoom interview prior to the uh, Hall of Fame induction uh, for this weekend. But he did it a couple, about a week or two ago. And... It's a small thing, but he knows everybody by name. And you say, yeah, this is Bob Kravitz from The Athletic. Hey, Bob, how you doing? How's your family? And then he'd answer your question. And he, mm -hmm. it wasn't just me. I mean, he did it with everybody. Hey, pal, what's going on? And it sounds like BS, but he, I, I think it was important enough for him to care. And he, he's always been like that. I mean, uh, I can't tell you, Todd, and I wrote about this in The Athletic recently, Number of times I've had people reach out to me and say I've got a an aunt who's dealing with you know cancer and would love nothing better than to hear from Peyton Manning and I, I would email them say hey you do what you you want to do but I'm just letting you know you know no no uh, uh, no obligation right no right. obligation just do what you want and without fail somebody will call me back and say my my aunt just talked to Peyton Manning for 15 minutes. And it meant the world to her. And it's just something he does. And, uh, you know, he, he cares about this game. He cares about he cares about his reputation. But who the hell doesn't? Yeah, exactly right. You know, and I, I didn't have a lot of 
uh, time around Peyton, you know, very limited, you know, on, on rare occasions. Um, but I always, from afar, the thing that made me feel like he must be uh, like a real genuine dude in terms of how he presents himself is that he was also known as a prankster, right? Oh, my gosh. He was the worst. He was, in, in fact, I talked with um, one of their uh, one of their staffers. He said that between Peyton and the offensive lineman at training camp, uh, it was like uh, a, it was like a, a mafia crime family. You know, they they used to take they they, they took this guy's uh, jeep and put it on floats and put it out in the middle of a lake in Terre Haute. Um, one of the players' jeeps. One one of the staffers' jeeps. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. He did one thing after another. Um, but yeah, that that and, and you couldn't get back at him. I mean, you just couldn't because Jim Mercer would not allow it. Well, I always felt like, again. I felt if if a guy has a good sense of humor, yeah, then there's got to be some genuineness there. Yeah, and you know we've had some interesting conversations. We've there was this one time he was pissed off at me for something. I don't remember exactly what it was, and. Um, we had a great conversation at one point. I said, Peyton, you are so full of shit. And, and he just started laughing. And I remember my daughter, my little daughter at the time was walking by my, my office and she's like, she's looking at me. She's like, did you just tell Peyton Manning he was full of shit? (laughs) (laughs) I said, yes, it was not one of my most professional moments, but it was just two guys hashing out, hashing out their differences. And I I just, I, I just find him to be real. Um, I mean, he's a, he's a special guy, and I'm really looking forward to this weekend. Now, when you think about it, your own career, 10 years pretty much with Elway, 12, I think, with Manning. Right. You know. Luck. I mean, that's, we're talking a couple decades, Bob, where you're around two of the all-time greatest NFL players. Incredible. When you think about it, is there something about both of them that made them who they were? Yeah, and, you know, the, the, I also had Bernie Kosar, and I'm not putting – him in their category, obviously, but he was pretty damn good. Right. Uh, you know, Great not player. not an all-timer, but, you know, a pretty damn good. I think the thing with Peyton and, and with Elway, but especially Peyton, is he never got bored with the game. He never, like Peyton, and I had this conversation with the late Kobe Bryant um, when Kobe came through Indianapolis the day after Peyton threw for like 480 yards. And... He was saying the thing about great athletes is they never get bored in the, you know, they never get tired of striving to get an edge, to to, to get better, to learn something new about the game that they didn't know before. And I, you know, I I don't know that Elway had that intellectual curiosity. Uh, I think he became more of a thinking man's quarterback as his as his career went on. but Peyton was a thinking man's quarterback from the word go. And I, I just think that the, the great the great athletes just it's a never ending quest to improve. And um, he he just never got bored with the game of football. And uh, he still isn't. Yeah, it's like Alexander the Great wept when there was no more worlds to conquer. Right. Right. That's well, these exactly guys right. keep finding new lands to conquer and new things, new slights. Running should be simple. Just put on your shoes and go. 
And yet, when you try to learn about how to get better at it, especially as you age, you're confronted with conflicting advice, complicated workouts, and confusing nutrition trends that just won't work for you. On The Planted Runner, I'll share exactly how to run faster, longer, and feel great doing it at any age because you don't have time to waste. I'm Coach Claire Bartholik, and I went from not running at all in my late 30s to finishing a marathon in 2.58 at age 42, all on a plant-based diet. I've helped hundreds of runners achieve new personal records well into their 60s and even 70s with science-backed training, plant-based nutrition, and proven mental strength techniques. Each episode of The Planted Runner is like a private coaching session on the run where you'll learn from me and the guests I interview. You'll get actionable lessons to help you become a better runner every week and reach goals you never thought possible. Whether you're training for your first 5K or your 50th marathon, take along the planted runner on your next run. Let me show you how your best running is still ahead of you. That make them want to prove something. And uh, I think that really is, you know, what separates the ultimate guys from, you know, just the very good guys. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, another ultimate guy, another ultimate quarterback that <laughs> you're kind of tied to is another guy, Tom Brady. Yeah. And you have <laughs> you mentioned this. <laughs> Meanwhile, you were covering Andrew Luck. Not like you're another slice of ham here yeah. <laughs> as a Colts I, quarterback. I, you I, got yeah. Andrew Luck also. But Brady and you are, are – there's always going to be part of Brady and Bob Kravitz tied together because of Deflategate. Yeah. And it was, um, you know – 2015 AFC title game, you mentioned this. You broke the story on Deflategate. How did that come about? So after the game, I was down in the in the locker room doing my thing, and then we did a little uh, post-game show uh, for the NBC affiliate. And I left my phone up in the in the in the press box, A, because I'm a moron, and B, uh, it, it needed charged. Okay. So I after all this stuff, I come up to the press box and I see a, a text from somebody saying, you know, basically call me. It's incredibly important. So uh, I call this person and I'm told what's going on. Uh, I then spent the next 45 minutes trying to get it confirmed. Um, and I got really lucky that night. I got it confirmed um, by, by a great source. And I said, well, here goes nothing. And about 12, 15, 12, 20, I tweeted it out. And it was weird because, uh, you know, we didn't have a lot of um, a lot of detail. All I knew was that they were gonna, they were being investigated for allegedly using uh, deflated footballs. You know, the Boston people are always on my ass because they're saying, well, you know, they beat them 100 to nothing and it made no difference. Well, you know, if you take steroids and you bat 136, it doesn't mean that you still took the steroids. You still try to get a competitive advantage. So, uh, you know, I never said that he, they were using deflated footballs. I said they were being investigated for using, uh, for allegedly using deflated footballs. And then all hell broke loose. And my life, my life was, it was interesting. Uh, I, it'll probably be on my gravestone someday. Why did that story blow up? Pardon the expression. Well, because... And I knew that it would because we're talking about the flagship franchise uh, of the NFL. Uh, we're talking about a team that was headed to the Super Bowl again. And, you know, uh, you know, in Boston, Boston fans, God bless them. They, they're true believers and 
uh, even after, uh, you know, the other issues they've had, um, they, they just refused to believe that anything untoward could have happened. Um, it got ugly. I mean, a lot of, you know, they went after my wife, my daughters on Facebook, uh, you know, a lot of anti-Semitic nonsense, but you know, I, if I have a, if I have any regret is that I kind of got caught up in the Twitter ground, the Twitter mess that Mm -hmm. it became instead of just saying, you know what? Screw you people. I'm right. Um, Not right that they use deflated footballs. I was right that they were being investigated for using Mm -hmm. deflated footballs. And I should have just taken the high road. I wish I had, but you know, there's a, I'm a, I I, I like to fight, you know, not physically uh, unless necessary, but uh, I'm a fighter and I, I just, would not put up with having my integrity questioned. On well, this. that turned into like not only the league, but you had court cases. Oh. What was the craziest moment for you personally uh, to be in the middle of that? Hmm. I got to think about that a little bit. Um. Well, I'll tell you the I'll tell you the most surreal moment for me. I got a call from CNN to go on, and I was on with uh, Anderson Cooper. You know. And I almost called him Cooper. <laughs> I, I came this close. But I, at that point, I was like, holy crap, this is. And it, it was, a, you know, it was a lead story on the national news for, you know, days and days, weeks and weeks. Um, you know, I don't know if there was one moment uh, that was more surreal than the, than the rest. But just seeing myself, uh, you know through the camera lens, I guess, uh, on on CNN in prime time was really, really odd to me. There's no uh, Spalding guide for handling that kind of thing. You know, uh, it, it was a position I, you know, I've broken some stories before, but nothing ever of that scope or nature. Um, so, you know, I, as a columnist, yeah, I mean, I, I, I had my opinion. I was probably too proprietary about the story. Um, maybe there was part of me that wanted it to be true. And as I go back through it and look at look at all the evidence and everything, I, I think, look, I, I think something untoward happened. You know, whether that was Brady's doing or the equipment manager, I don't know to this day. And we, we probably won't know. But yeah, it was it was a strange, it was a strange time uh, in my professional life. Um, I was on TV constantly. I was hired basically by WTHR, the NBC affiliate, to be, you know, a writer. Well, I found myself leading the news half the time. Mm. Uh, so, which is cool, good for the ego, I guess. But um, that's not why I got into this business. Well, you know, the way things are with social media in the world now, the blowback is just more immediate. But there's always right. been part of that for anybody who throws an opinion out there about something based on, you know, reported news. I mean, you grew up in Long Island. You right. grew up reading Dick Young at the New York Daily News, right? Got it. You got it. Dick Young, Mike Lupica, um, all those guys. You know, um, I remember my dad would, you know, take the Long Island Railroad home and he would pick up all the newspapers, Newsday, Daily News, New York Times, uh, uh, New York Post. And I would just consume that stuff. And I knew from a very early age, I was a strange child. I knew from an early age, this is what I wanted to do. There was something magical about newspapers. And there still is, even though 
the business is kind of going by the wayside. And yeah, it, it, it was, it, I just saw, you know, uh, I didn't agree with everything that, that Lupica or uh, Dick Young said or who, whoever it was, but by God, they had something to say. And mm-hmm. I just, I found that really admirable, you know, now, you know, some of it I'm sure was total BS, but you know, I, I liked it. I'll just give you a quick story. Um, I was, we, were, we moved to Chicago my junior year of high school. And um, I was one of the editors of the high school paper. And a, uh, a local synagogue uh, was wanting to start up a local uh, newspaper, mm-hmm. you know, mostly for, you know, Jewish kids uh, in the area, high schoolers. And this was at the time when the Nazi, a neo-Nazi group wanted to march in Skokie, Illinois, yeah, which uh, had Chicago, right. a huge, huge um, uh, uh, number of Holocaust survivors. And I wrote a front page editorial uh, saying, let a march, you know. Um, mm. And that was the last time I wrote for that for that uh, for that paper, uh, suffice to say. Um, but. That's kind of the way I roll. I, I don't know if it's, I'm a contrarian or if I just got dropped on my head as a kid. But if I feel strongly about something, I'm going to write it. And, you know, wherever the chips fall, the chips fall. Well, you said you like to fight. I mean, so it's one thing to be on the East Coast. Um, and that's kind of a in-your-face New York type of thing. Right, right. You go to Midwestern, nice Midwest Indianapolis. Very different. And you're, and you're ripping Bob Knight or Peyton Manning or Tony Dungy or Larry Bird when he was coaching the Pacers. When you rip people like that, do you know, like, blowback is coming? Do you expect it? Do you do it because you really believe it, or are you looking for effect? Oh, you! I, I think you've known me long enough that I, I believe, you know, look, I may be completely full of crap, but I believe everything I write. Right. Now, do I feel more strongly about certain issues and other issues? Are there times where I could kind of go either way? Yeah, but— if I write something strong, if a strongly worded column with a strong opinion, damn right I believe it. You know, I mean, look, I haven't heard from Ballard, and I probably won't because he's a pretty good guy uh, and doesn't really care what we have to say all that much, and rightly so. But, yeah, I mean, I know when there's going to be blowback, but I don't write it for that purpose. I mean, Yeah, and I like, know that. I, I was yeah. asking that for the record, really. Yeah, I think a lot of yeah. people do feel like a guy like you, oh, they're just trying to stir it up just to get reaction. Well, look, you're, I think you're always looking to write about the thing that's on everybody's mind. Right. You know, and I, I think in, in many ways you are the loud mouth at the end of the bar who's got an opinion on everything and has had a couple of pops and you can't shut them up. And so, I, yeah, I, I, I know when there's going to be blowback. I Like, you know, I wrote about Tony Dungy and I, I didn't under, understand why he was— coming back for an additional year when his family had moved back to the Tampa area. And, you know, I said, you know, this guy is, you know, he talks about the primacy of family and he's in, you know, all these uh, organizations, you know, fathers and all that kind of thing, fathers and family first or whatever it's called. And this, the town went nuts. I mean, you do not mess with St. Tony, Mm. you know, and, I, you know, I, I like him and respect him. I don't like and respect a lot of his, his views on things. Um, 
you know, he's uh, he's got his own way of looking at the world. But, yeah, you, you, you have a pretty good sense going in when all hell is going to break loose. And uh, I like I tell high school, high school and college kids, you just can't worry about it. And, and look, there are still people, you know, our age, my age, your age who are in this business who are still afraid to ruffle feathers. And I'm not saying it makes me any better than anybody else. Just if you're going to be a columnist, you can't be afraid of the blowback. Right. Well, if there's no golden cows, you got to show back up at the farm the next day with your Absolutely. milk pail. And you did that. Uh, and didn't Dante Bichette once uh, want to kill you? <laughs> yeah. So Dante. Um, Baseball Dante, player, Dante yes, Bichette. Dante Bichette with the Rockies. Their first year, or maybe it was their first year, second year, I can't remember. But he was a star. He was the Rockies' first big star, along with Andre Scalarago. And one day, uh, Sports Illustrated wrote a story about domestic violence and mentioned that Dante had a rap, you know, had a rap sheet. And I thought, whoa, I, I, we had no idea. Hmm. And so I called him. You know, I, I got in touch with him and said, look, we, we need to address this. And he was all for it. He was all for it. Well, I said, let me call down to where, you know, this happened. Let me get the police report just so I know what I'm working with. Well, I called down there. And if I remember correctly, uh, there were a number of incidents. And so I wrote about it. I, I was totally straight with him. I said, you know, what happened here? What happened here? What, what happened here? And this was at the time when the whole OJ thing was going on. And so I wrote a column and it was the column that pissed him off. But I talked about the importance of re re writing about this sort of thing, you know. And so uh, at training camp, uh, spring training the next year, I'm just sitting there, you know, in the outfield doing nothing. And he comes walking up to me and he'd, he'd been lifting a lot of weights or doing something in the offseason because he was big and he was angry. And thank God Don Baylor the, the, the late manager of the Rockies and one of my favorite people, uh, he saw that it was going to get ugly fast. Now, Dante, Dante, we were nose to nose. I was screaming back at him. And, you know, again, probably not the most professional thing, but, you know, you kind of revert to your essential hum, hum, humanity at that point, you know, and, you know, I'm just not going to put up with it. You know, if somebody wants to have uh, a civil discussion a disagreement, like I, I often did with Peyton, uh, I can do that. But if you want to threaten me and make a big show of it in front of your teammates, uh, I'm not going to sit. I'm not going to back down. So thank goodness Don Baylor uh, kind of put an end to it. How is it when you have a working relationship with a guy like Bill Pullian for several years, <laughs> when he was general manager and president of the Colts? Uh, you and I, you and Bill. Uh, well, you describe it. What was your relationship like? Uh, not good. Um, it started out pretty good. He, yeah, but um, I, you know, look, it, it's it's funny. Uh, Peter King, uh, our friend Peter, told uh, Bill, I said, I give you and Kravitz three weeks. Because he knows, Peter knows how I roll, and he knows Bill doesn't like the media unless you're hardcore, hardcore football insider. And... Um, yeah, there was a story I wrote. I mean, look, Bill hates the media. Everywhere, except for the national guys who he spoon feeds, he, he does not like the local media. He didn't get along with Sully, J Jerry Sullivan, 
in mm-hmm. Buffalo, didn't get along with me. You know, he didn't get along with any of the local yokel media. He didn't think we were important enough. And so one time I wrote a piece. Uh, this is when his son pretty much took over the team late in their in their time there. And I basically wrote a, a column quoting a number of uh, unnamed sources, basically saying that Chris Polian was not real sharp. And so Bill, after the game, after a game, talked about sewer rats and the people that lie about and, and sewer rat. Well, he called me a sewer rat, basically hmm. on the radio. And I didn't even know about it. I was writing my column in the press box and all of a sudden my Twitter blows up. You're a sewer rat. It's like high school. <laughs> it's like high school. It really is. And the, the, the cool thing is I went to his uh, Hall of Fame when, when he, when he was, uh, got his uh, some Hall of Fame deal. And I went and, and congratulated him. And we had a nice talk. And I acknowledged that at times I was a little over the top. And he acknowledged that he was a little over the top. And look, we're never going to be best buddies. But I think we reached a certain detente at, at, at that point. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, you know, I've always had respect for guys like you that are willing to go there, you know, with opinions um, and then, you know, stand up. Yeah. Like you said, you like to fight. And I mean, sometimes that's the way it goes uh, for a columnist, uh, especially, or or a beat reporter who breaks a big news that, you know, a big news story that somebody doesn't like. I just, you know, that's, that was part of the gig. Absolutely. The gig. Do you have a favorite hate mail example? Ooh, um, there's so many, Todd. I'll give you mine. I'll give you mine. Oh, yeah, you you give me yours. I once got a letter. uh, I still have it. It's a handwritten letter. I'm going to frame it someday. I keep forgetting to frame it. It's a handwritten letter addressed to me, and it just said, to Todd Jones, f*** you, go Irish. (laughs) And I thought, that is so brilliant. That is so brilliant. is the soul of wit. He's right to the point. Right. It's right to the point and doesn't pull any punches, and I probably deserved it, and I kept well, that what, one. I, that was a great favorites. example. One of my favorites, and I wish I had kept it. It wasn't hate mail, but uh, one year the Indianapolis 500 was going to have Donald Trump um, as the pace car driver. Mm-hmm. And this is at the time where he was uh, starting to make noise about how Obama wasn't American and all this stuff. And I just I wrote a column saying— there is no way you can have this moron. Um, excuse me for all the you. Nah, the hell with you. Um, anyway, I wrote this column. A couple of weeks later, I get a handwritten no- note from Donald Trump's office. It's a, it's a Xerox copy of my column, and he writes, "Thanks for the pub, Donald." <laughs> <laughs> I wish I still had it. There's no bad publicity, right? No bad publicity. Well, you know what's funny? You said you like to fight, but I also know you well enough, Bob, that you you once told me, and it surprised me in a conversation we had, you said, I don't handle stress well. No, not now. Yeah. And I think that's really an interesting juxtaposition that, um, you know, you can relish the fight and get in and, you know, swing away. And and yet at the same time, it's not always— you know, I mean, we're, it's not hard labor. We're not, we're not no. digging ditches, uh, you know. But um, there is a lot of stress in, in that type of career, the late nights, the travel, and so forth. And, you, and you've had some health issues, right? Yeah, physically, physically, it's beaten me up. And, you know, part of it, 
part of it is family history. You know, I had I had a quadruple bypass uh, last April, um, and I've had I've had one thing after another. It hasn't I mean, you almost fun. had a heart attack at age forty six, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like fifteen and, and years I, ago. Yeah, and uh, it's been it's stressful. Part of it is family history. Part of it is I don't take as good a care of myself as I really should, and part of it is it's just a damn stressful job when you're always having to produce. And some people handle it better than others. And it's always been, it's like, you know, mentally it's been okay, uh, but physically it's taken a bit of a toll. Like I've had, you know, we've talked about this. I've had uh, issues with depression and anxiety, but that doesn't seem to be related to the work. Hmm. I don't know where it comes from, honestly, but I enjoy my work. Uh, And, but I, I think some of the physical uh, maladies, which I think really held me back in my career, are are things that I think are brought on by the stresses of the job. Because I don't care, I don't care what you do or how wonderful a job you have. I mean, there are stresses that come with it, and oh, exactly, it, right. it's it's been it's been a bit of a challenge for me. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I know. I had my own issues when I was younger, especially looking back. You know, the travel. You're on the road. You're unsure of yourself. Probably drank too much. No doubt. You know, no the doubt. anxiety. I just, I just, I remember things like, oh, the 1990 World Series. Well, I remember not sleeping the entire series. Right. You know, just because I was just on edge. And and so there's things that you look back on on your younger days, uh, you know, and, and I know personally I, I didn't handle it well. And I think that's one of the good things about getting older when you start to take stock in a right. career, no matter what it is that you do. And you look back and you say, you can actually have some better judgment about how you were or what you did and also a better appreciation about, you know, what it is that you did for a living. Yeah. I, I you know, I remember back to, I remember covering, was it the San Antonio and the New Jersey Nets uh, in the NBA finals. And I remember my anxiety was so bad that we got back to the hotel in New York and I couldn't get in the elevator for two hours. Mm. I, I just sat in the lobby. I, I just could not imagine being in a crowded elevator. I couldn't do it. It, it was, I mean, the anxiety was overwhelming at times. Uh, and I I have to say that, you know, when I was at the Star, which is when things kind of got a little wonky for me, uh, my bosses were great. My bosses understood, you know, I mean, the mental health thing is, is big now. Back then, not so much. And I always felt like they were going to fire me tomorrow because I couldn't cover an all-star game because my anxiety was through the roof, but they were very good about it. And, uh, you know, I think, I think I was good for them. Um, so, you know, they were, they, they accommodated me. Bob, why did you decide to go public a couple of years ago about your depression and, and panic attacks? Um, I, you know, I, that's a great question. I, I think, you know, like there were a couple of athletes who had come out and talked about, uh, I, correct me if I'm wrong, I think Theo Fleury, who I knew real well in uh, Denver. Kevin Love. Uh, Kevin Love, that was another one. Uh, A couple of athletes had come out, and I just decided, and look, at this point, it's almost a cliche to write the column, but I just wanted to be personal. I wanted to be real and say, Mm -hmm. hey, for a long time there, I would go to bed at night and hope I didn't wake up the next morning. It, it got it got serious. I mean, I remember driving halfway to a stress clinic 
to 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 you know check myself in and I turned back around and I probably shouldn't have but I was I was really suicidal at that point hmm. and it's um you know I mean I I do things now to to keep all those things at bay um I, I think I'm in a much better place emotionally but you know dude it, it's it's been a tough couple of years. I, mean, I lost my my dad. I lost my job at at Channel Thirteen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the athletic has been great, but you know, it's been a challenge. It's mm-hmm. not what I have done my entire career. You know, I've been a twelve hundred word columnist, and they want other things. So it's it's been a challenge, you know. And uh, I'm just you know, but I, I think I'm in a better place to handle it emotionally than than I was before. Well, that's great to hear. And uh, I know that because of conversations we've had. And uh, I'm happy for you personally. And I know the business is better off with you still cranking them out. And, you know, read Bob in The Athletic. He's still uh, bringing thoughtful opinions and breaking news. And and, uh, sports journalism is better because of it. So I'm glad you're still doing it. Thank you, buddy. And you think about it, you are a survivor. You survived eight hours in a tuna can. With wheels in Greece, with me driving. <laughs> well, I think the I think the hard part was with you. <laughs> that was the hard part. No, it was great. No, I always enjoyed. I've always enjoyed. I I wish you were still in the business. I'm glad you're you're doing well and happy. But uh, you you were always one of the guys. You know, I I, I miss going out. Uh, you know, I mean, how old are you, Todd? I'm fifty six. Fifty six. Okay, I'm sixty one. You know, our group, you know, we like to go out and have a couple beers. Yeah, you know, more than a couple. More than a couple. <laughs> more than a couple. Certainly in my case, I, uh, I was a nutcase back then. Play hard, work hard. Play hard, work hard, absolutely. But I enjoyed this. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. I really appreciate it, and best of luck. All right. Thanks, buddy. Thanks for listening to Press Box Access. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcomed here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando, producer Bill Huffman, and our audio engineer Dave Douglas. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Hi, my name is Andy Billman, and this is the Believe in the Land podcast, a weekly look back at the week that was in Cleveland sports. The highs. Oh, Guardians Club, Guardians Club. The lows. I've been asked on this channel all the time, when are you going to panic? Panic button's been hit. And everything in between. I directed a film that came out in 2016 called Believe Land. And we love our sports here in Cleveland, Ohio. Thank you, God! Check in for weekly podcasts and so much more. What the hell was that tonight? All in, all day, every day. Go Cleveland. Believe in the land.